Welcome to Season 5 of Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Louis Studs Turkle. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with good, hardworking people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. We're going to roll out season five with a bona fide bootstrapper. Justin Jackson is an entrepreneur, a marketing guru, a dynamic podcaster, and a community builder. He's also a kind and thoughtful person whose conversation I quite enjoy. Along with his business partner and pal, John, he's the co-founder and co-owner of Transistor.fm. Now, in full disclosure, Transistor is the software service that hosts the Studs podcast. In yet fuller disclosure, after I had this conversation with Justin, I will scream out to the ether that I am proud to have all my podcasts hosted on Transistor. Hey, do you mind if I share a little backstory on this one? You don't mind, do you? Okay, so if you're a regular listener, you probably know Scott Robin by now. I interviewed him on season one. Uh, he's on the most recent working roundtable for Studs patrons. That's patreon.com slash studs. Go over there, show a little love. Scott also played Howard Maple, the pet eulogist on the Studs inaugural April Fool's gag. Side note, if you haven't listened to the pet eulogist episode, you pretty much have to. It's like the best thing I've ever published. Scott was a legit genius. We laugh our asses off and and my daughter makes her studs debut in a cameo that in this father's always adoring eyes can only be described as an Oscar-worthy performance. Anyway, Scott's been my main squeeze basically since birth. He's kind of my hero. Truth. He's also been my seeing eye dog for all things technology. So when I told him I wanted to start a podcast, he told me to check out this platform called Transistor.fm that one of his colleagues at Cards Against Humanity started. That's John Buda, Justin's co-founder. So I signed up for Transistor. Look, I had no idea what I was doing. So I found myself messaging the Transistor help desk like every couple of weeks in retrospect, admittedly, with asinine questions that were probably readily available on their FAQ page. And Justin himself responded to some of my help tickets. And in one help ticket exchange, I was like, hey, man, my buddy Scott used to work with your buddy John. He says that you and John are like super groovy. You want to be on my podcast? <laughs> and Justin was totally game. I was thrilled. So we set it up. Now listen, for better or worse, I never do any research on my guests or their work, really. In fact, one of my favorite things about this podcast is to kind of go through life, right? Like riding the train, watching the broccoli roast, waiting for my kid to put her damn shoes on, whatever. And just kind of imagining what a forthcoming studs guest might have to say. Like, I love, love, love that part of my process. But I discovered for the last two years, Justin and John have been doing a weekly podcast, exploring their expectations and frustrations, their, you know, their hopes and their dreams for the development of Transistor. 
So I just thought maybe I'll listen to an episode or two, you know, just to help me frame up a couple questions for Justin. But I totally fell for John and Justin and their dynamic. Hey, you would too. Hey, I'll, I'll, you know what I'll do? I'll link to their podcast in the show notes here. Anyway, I accidentally ended up listening to a few dozen hours of Justin talking about his work. And I learned that Justin thinks seriously and very empathically about working. And as someone who hosts a podcast about working, I was totally stoked to talk with him. Justin shares with me the joys and stresses of starting a software-as-a-service company. He speaks poetically about how his work is like surfing, and he shares meditations on decision-making and vulnerability. It's the perfect kickoff to season five of Studs, so please join me in conversation with a developer, entrepreneur, marketer, and a bona fide student of working, Justin Jackson. Justin Jackson, welcome to Studs. Thank you for joining me. And if I may, I'd like to sincerely thank you for what you do at Transistor.fm and for podcasting more broadly. Transistor.fm has empowered my students and me to explore new ideas and to discover and and to rediscover our, our voices. Um, and if I'm going to be honest, podcasting has grounded me and inspired me and given me a renewed sense of purpose uh, in this damn pandemic. So Transistor.fm helped to make this possible. So thank you. And now, can you kindly describe what you do? Oh, that was really kind. Um, like, generally, I'll say I do product and marketing for Transistor. But there's so much, I don't know, there's so much more to it than that. Like, really, I'm a co-founder. My partner, John, and I run this company. It's essentially a two-person company with, you know, uh, a few part-time contractors and like when I tell people what I want to do for the next decade, if I could, if I could do a deal with the devil and the devil says, okay, I get your soul when you die, but you can have whatever you want for the rest of your life. I would say if I can keep working with John on Transistor and be assured that it'll just continue to provide for us and we get to continue to do this work. I would, I would, I would give my soul to the devil. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean, you and John obviously have a, a special relationship, and we're definitely going to make some time to dive into that today. But mm -hmm. can you tell us a bit about what Transistor.fm is and what you do as a co-founder? Yeah, so it's podcast hosting and analytics. Podcasting is unique. Unlike YouTube, where you upload to a centralized platform, uh, podcasting is completely decentralized. So every time you click play in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen, it's downloading or streaming that audio file from a podcast hosting provider like Transistor. Um, so some people think, well, you just upload it to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but that's not how it works. Yeah, so we provide the, the hosting just like website hosting, you need hosting for your podcast and the analytics. But kind of broader than that, I, I think we really are empowering people to get into podcasting or to get better at podcasting. 
And that's why I get out of bed every day. I just, I'll answer customer support tickets from morning till night, even on my days off. I just, I like helping people do this work, express themselves this way. There's something about getting on the microphone that's really grounding, even if you don't have that many listeners. Like I, I, I do a show with my business partner, John, and just getting on the mic with him every week is so grounding. And there's something about the microphone that makes you be a, a better version of yourself, a higher version of yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we would do this even if we had no listeners. I think podcasting is just, it's one of those practices that has, uh, pays all sorts of dividends. So that's what we do at Transistor. We, we just empower people to share their audio with the world and experience this thing that we've found so helpful for ourselves. So I'm hoping you might give us a sense of how you got on this path. I know it has something to do with a snowboard shop, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but maybe can you give us a sense of the trajectory of your professional pursuits and route to Transistor.fm? Sure. I start, I don't talk about this very much, but um, I started in my early 20s in ministry, in Christian ministry. And I don't talk about it very much because I'm not religious anymore. And so, you know, it's just, it feels like this other part of my life. And I did that up until I was, I was 28. Oh my. And in between there, I had started a, a skateboard and snowboard shop in, in my hometown. But primarily I was in ministry I was always into business from the, like, very early on. I liked the idea of starting business. And so in some ways, ministry was the, was the detour because I was, I was so set on being an entrepreneur. And then, yeah, I had this uh, big kind of 10-year <laughs> uh, life in ministry. Once I was kind of leaving the faith and leaving the, the occupation... Yeah, that was a weird time. I was 28. I think we had, by that point, I had four kids, oh my. my wife and I. And uh, I remember being very anxious and scared at 28, thinking, I've just spent 10 years of my life doing this. And Christian ministry is kind of like big fish, small pond syndrome. You get a lot of people pumping you up, telling you that you're something real special. And then you get <laughs> my experience at 28 was getting out into the real world with my resume and being like, wow, people really do not care about this at all about my 10 years of experience. And so I remember like applying at the Apple store and not getting the job. And then I remember applying to be a salesperson for a like windows and doors manufacturing company. And just being like, okay, like this is, this is it. Like, I guess I'm just going to be doing work that, uh, you know, the only purpose is really to provide for my family. And then I got lucky, someone that kind of knew of me and was running a software company in Edmonton, Alberta, called me out of the blue while I was (laughs) kind of in the dumps of despair, wondering what I was going to do next. And he offered me a job. And so I started at that software company in 2008, uh, kind of ground level, doing customer support. And then 
Uh, over the next uh, eight years with them, I worked myself up to product manager. Basically, ever since I was hired there, I've been in the software tech industry. And almost immediately, I was like, okay, I've got to do this. Like, this business model is just different than almost anything else. It gives uh, small independent companies an enormous amount of leverage uh, because the internet is a good distribution platform and it's relatively inexpensive to start a software company. It can be very expensive depending on what you're doing, but it's relatively inexpensive, especially when you compare it to, you know, a snowboard shop, you might need at least, I don't know, $200,000 of inventory just to get started. And, you know, if you start a coffee shop or a restaurant, you need 300 to 500 grand just to get everything kind of set up. So once I was in, I was intrigued and felt like, okay, this industry is where I'm going to eventually be able to launch a business again. And I kind of had my eyes on that ever since I, I switched back in 2008. Huh. So you are really deeply interested in ambitious projects, right? M- ministry is a profoundly ambitious project. Mm. And uh, software service companies, bootstrapping, this is some really ambitious stuff. You really need to mm-hmm. help to change the way that people think, right? Um, you are a, a self-described bootstrapper. Uh, I might even say a proud bootstrapper. Mm-hmm. I was not familiar with the term bootstrapping in the contemporary context um, until I learned a bit about you. Can you give me the concise definition of bootstrapper? And then I'm going to ask you a question about it. Bootstrapping, the way I apply it, especially in tech, applies to businesses that don't get venture funding. So uh, some folks will say it's anyone who's self-funding, anyone who's building a business with no funding. But in tech, it almost always describes companies who haven't taken venture capital. So by extension, they're independent. Usually the founders own all of the stock or most of it, beholden to nobody, Difficult in the beginning because you have to figure out how to make this thing work and get it up to you know a certain uh, break-even point or a certain ramen profitability without you know going broke or becoming broken, <laughs> as yeah, yeah. I say. Uh, for me, I think what attracted me to it is uh, Silicon Valley and especially venture capital has demanded a lot of young founders. And I always felt like I was old as soon as I got into this industry. I'm 28, and I'm already one of the oldest pe- people on the team, you know? Yeah. And then in some ways, I felt like, you know, I was just, I just felt like Rocky my whole career. Mm. Just like this old washed up guy that is trying to catch up and trying to compete with these younger folks. Yeah, venture capital is very much a kind of young person's game. It's, it's, uh, I mean, when you talk about ambition, it is incredibly ambitious. Yeah. Uh, venture capitalists want big returns. They want you to shoot for the moon. They want a home run, right? And so they're fine if you swing hard and swing out. They just they would prefer that you swing hard and swing out and go for the fences than try to get on base. And I think for me, there's just a bootstrapping had this practicality to it of like, no, a business needs to have customers, it needs to have a business model. 
Uh, it needs to be profitable. It needs to have revenue fairly quickly. And it needs to keep costs as low as you can. And uh, after I'd worked for a few software companies, some of those were funded companies. And the experience was not great. <laughs> it's just like you have this runway but you're used to spending money. You're used to staffing up. You're used to, and it's really easy for a team to delude itself right. to think that they've got something right. when they really don't. The having money in the pocket temporarily it um, makes things fuzzy. So, I think yeah, just philosophically, there's something that appeals to me about bootstrapping. And uh, a lot of this is informed by, you know, my first week working for that first software company, I get handed this book called Getting Real by a small company in Chicago called 37 Signals. Uh, it was written by Jason Fried and David Hannemeyer Hansen. And I, I read that book in an afternoon, and it just described a philosophy and ethos for building businesses that really resonated with me. Yeah, 37 Signals, they're now Basecamp. Um, they're, they are kind of the, <laughs> the perfect embodiment of a bootstrap company, right? They are beholden to nobody except for their, their customers. And, you know, they've carved out a really nice life for themselves and their team on their own terms. So, yeah, I think all of that stuff appealed to me and still does appeal to me. I'm highly skeptical of venture capital and venture capitalists. Some businesses need venture capital, but especially, I think for founders, <laughs> it's worth asking the question, what do you want? And for me, it was like, well, I want to do work I enjoy. I want to carve out a nice life for myself and whoever I'm working with. And I want it to be relatively calm. Hmm. I don't want to be pedal to the metal all the time. Uh, and maybe this was because I was so ambitious in my 20s and saw what that was like. <laughs> and this is not abnormal for people in their 20s. Maybe ambition is required in your tw 20s. Um, but once I got into my 30s and now 40s, I just felt like, no, I just want, I just want freedom. I want flexibility. I want calm. Yeah. I want margin in my life. And I think not being beholden to anybody else except for customers and the people I work with was really attractive. So I think that's a great answer. And I just actually happened to listen to you talking to Jason Fried on your, your podcast and mm -hmm. the base camp folk, our hometown heroes. I'm a, I'm a Chicago boy myself. Mm -hmm. The transistor.fm has remained independent. But having listened to your podcast a bit, it's clear that you've grappled with the possibility of outside investors. Mm -hmm. One of your competitors, Simplecast, sold for the paltry sum of $28 million. <laughs> and, you know, that's a lot for a SaaS. Yeah. You know, this is a podcast about working and what people do every day and how they feel about it. And I really wonder how the prospect of outside investments affects how you do your work every day. I mean, it does give us a certain amount of anxiety. My advice to people who want to build a company, first of all, it sure helps if you have a bunch of money 
saved up in a bank account before <laughs> before you start building. Yeah, you think? Uh, this dynamic, I think, became really clear between John and I. You know, John is not married, does not have kids, and has had a pretty comfortable kind of developer salary for most of his life. And money to him is not a huge issue. He's got lots saved up. And he also had the security while we were building Transistor of being employed. I had been running my own business by this point since 2016, so for two years. And I did not have a bunch of savings. And so the thrashing that you you heard in that in our podcast series is like, man, like I'm, I'm getting stretched here. And again, this is the, the risk. You're either going to end up broke or broken. Yeah. So I think part of the thrashing is just like, ah, like now it's getting, this is getting really difficult. So I had a financial stress. And I think for John, it was a time stress because he was working full time, coming home, turning on his computer again and building transistor evenings and weekends. So yeah, I think that that has been a stress now that we're past it and it could have killed us. Yeah. So it's there's a little bit of a survivorship bias here. But now that we're past it, we are so glad that we didn't take investment. It's one of the things we're most proud of and you never say never like who knows, right? Like maybe we will, maybe the terms will be right. But um, I think these days, any anxiety we have is just the internet now has evolved into, you know, a handful of centralized mega corporations who own the platforms, Amazon, Spotify, Apple, Google, Facebook, and they have an enormous amount of power. Uh, it used to be, if we can, if we can invoke Karl Marx here for a second, please and thank you. Uh, it, <laughs> it used to be, it used to be that you know whoever owned the means of production had all of the leverage. And what the internet did, and really computers did, is it democratized the means of production. You and I are here speaking. We have our own radio station, something that would have cost millions of dollars in the past to do. And we're able to do it for, you know, you can get a microphone for 60 bucks. You can plug it in. Transistors uh, under $20 a month. It's democratized the ability for regular people to create things. So the means of production isn't the big issue anymore. What's changed is it now it's whoever owns the means of distribution has all the leverage. Uh, we've seen this over and over again. These big platforms will create a big social graph, a big distribution network, and initially incentivize people to join and to use it. And then once they have enough, enough, <laughs> then they then they ratchet it down and harm the the creators and individuals that kind of built built those platforms in the first place. So Spotify in our industry in podcasting is kind of the existential threat because absolutely Spotify's shareholders and investors and Daniel Eck would love to own the whole stack. They would love to have uh, control, centralized control over podcasting. They would love for it all for it all to happen within the Spotify ecosystem. And yeah, that that threat is scary when you're an independent company and 
really when I have like stress day to day, it's about like, what if, you know, what if Spotify wins and then we have nothing. And right now, you know, like Simplecast, they were acquired. So we, we have a relative idea of what a business could be worth. And so the idea of losing that is just, um, you know, that's where the stress comes in. But I mean, it's nice having a co-founder in those cases <laughs> because, you know, like whenever I get stressed out, John's just like, we're fine. Like, <laughs> yeah, we could worry about that, but, you know, right now we're fine. Tomorrow we'll wake up and we'll see if we're fine again. You know, that's all we can do is, uh, you know, take one day at a time, do whatever we can and hope for the best, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems that you and John sort of, you aim towards Zen, but you clearly embrace anxiety and you do that in a really transparent and admirable way. In your work, you need to know uh, when to explore and when to make a move. Mm-hmm. Your work has much to do with patience. Now, for someone who's not a surfer, mm-hmm. you deploy a lot of surfing metaphors. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping you might kindly discuss with me how you feel your work is like surfing, which I think is a metaphor for your relationship with patience. Mm -hmm. Talk to me all about that. Yeah. I mean, I would have preferred to use a metaphor I was more familiar with. Like (laughs) if I could have used snowboarding, I would have. Uh, But the thing that's unique about surfing is surfing is mostly about being in the water paddling, learning fundamentals, learning to read the waves, learning to read the weather, and definitely observing the size and shape of waves. And I think opportunity is a lot like that. Opportunity is about being in the water. You know, you you have to be in the water to see the waves and even to have a chance of paddling out and catching a wave. You can't just get be at home playing Xbox and then get an alert on your phone that there's a wave coming. You're too late by that point, right? You have to be in the water. And so for me, being in the water is exploring areas of interest. You know, like I was in podcasting since 2012. And for a long time, it was not a good industry to start a business in. It was mostly DIYers and hobbyists. Most of them were kind of rolling their own solutions. It was still too small, but I was in the water. I was participating. I was having discussions on forums. I was making relationships. I was connecting with other people. I was producing my own podcast. And over the years, that being in the water helped because I was able to recognize this coming wave uh, when Serial was launched and then the media kind of picked up on it. And now you have uh, op-ed in the New York Times every week about podcasting. Um, That kind of cresting wave as it's happening and recognizing it enabled me uh, and John to swim out and, and catch the wave. But we wouldn't have been able to do that if we hadn't been spending time in the water. The, the idea is you have to be exploring Like, you can't just stay still. Most of the people I know who have good businesses and good jobs, good careers, 
often they find those things while they were doing something else, right? They're, they're in motion doing something else, and all of a sudden this wave, this opportunity comes out, and they're in the water at the right time, the right place. They can swim out, and hopefully they have the fundamentals down where they're good paddlers, and they can swim out and catch the wave. I think uh, exploring areas of interest, I think meeting people in different circles, all of those, those exploration activities you do are like kind of just being in the water, waiting for a wave. And, you know, surfers try out multiple surf spots, right? It's like Monday, let's go over here. Tuesday, let's go over here. Wednesday, let's go over here. And I think that that idea just applies to life and the way opportunities happen. The surfer knows that the first spot they show up at, the waves might not be good there that day. You might have to go to another spot. But it's being in the water. It's the consistency of being in the water, checking things out, going to different spots, meeting different people. It, it increases the chances that you'll be able to catch a wave when it does happen. Have you read Will Finnegan's book, Barbarian Days? No. Are you aware of this? No. I'm loath to make a book recommendation on my own podcast, but it is this extended metaphor, a poetic metaphor, a lot of strong verbs mm -hmm. about surfing. I wouldn't be alone in recommending it. I, I just learned the other day that it won the Pulitzer Prize. When, when you're next on a beach wondering why it is that you haven't learned to surf, despite all of these surfing metaphors, <laughs> bring, bring Barbarian Days with you. Um, listen, it's already come up a few times, and I don't think we should go too much further into this conversation without diving into what seems to me to be this splendid partnership you have with John. Mm -hmm. Now, I am uh, deeply interested in working partnerships, Lennon McCartney, Bert and Ernie, Bacon and Eggs, <laughs> and in the Canadian space, what do we got? We got uh, Tegan and Sarah, Japan droids. <laughs> yeah. Japan droids are Canadian, right? I, I, um, I, I, you got waf waffles and syrup. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, like, I'm really interested in these partnerships. I have a hundred questions okay. about your partnership with John, but it seems fitting to me to start right here. Yes. Would you be so kind as to unpack this analogy and to explain how working with John gives you the power <laughs> of Voltron? Uh, sure. So in, in Voltron, multiple characters come together to form a giant super robot or super character, right? They all have their individual strengths and they form up to create something bigger and stronger than the individual parts. And yeah, teaming up with John felt like that. It felt like, you know, I'd spent a lot of my uh, creative endeavors doing solo work, trying to make things happen on my own. And I tried a few partnerships here and there. And I remember partnering up with John and 
just feeling like, wow, like this is one of the few times in my life where this partnership feels like an exponentially better together than we are apart. It's like our individual traits, our individual skills, even like our personalities, it's like we come together and it's the the sum is better than the parts. And the, the other weird thing was feeling like I I have these new superpowers. Like now I'm Voltron and I have all of this these new abilities that I didn't have before, but it's it's I'm still a part of it. Our partnership has been an absolute uh gift. Like and we both came together in kind of a a vulnerable point of our life just personally and um you know dealing with some depression and that's how we connected initially was just we'd met at uh XOXO festival in Portland and we just talked through professional stuff but then talk about personal life stuff and out of that we er- we were able to develop a trust and then when the opportunity came up to do transistor i still had to convince him <laughs> The the PR version of this is like, I said, said, hey, John, let's work together. And he's like, yeah, but he's very thoughtful. He took uh, a couple weeks to really think about it and then uh, said, yeah, let's do it. And ever since we've signed our partnership documents, we've been kind of committed to this idea that we're stronger together than apart. And um, the even the things that drive me crazy about him, like... <laughs> He has some personality traits that are completely opposite me um, and vice versa as well. Uh, I think we've learned to appreciate those and what they bring to our work. Like, I'm much more likely to say, hey, let's just do it. Let's go after this new idea. Let's pursue this new thing. And John is much more thoughtful, methodical, slow, just like, no, let's just slow it down. Let's think about it. Let's... uh, critique it at a high level. Yeah, I think that tension has been really helpful for our work. And it makes me wish that I'd found a partnership like this earlier in my career, because uh, I just think it's been so helpful. You've described yourself as the Walt Disney to John's Roy Disney. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure he was flattered by that. We all <laughs> love Roy Disney. Like everyone's talking about Roy. Um, <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't mind at all. He just seems like a super cool guy. But I want to push into this partnership a little bit more because, as mm-hmm. I said, I do have this profound interest in partnerships. You said that, you know, his skill set and perhaps some of his personality characteristics feel like it gives you and the the company, like these superpowers. Mm-hmm. What are his greatest strengths? What are his greatest assets? And what are yours? Can you draw me the uh, John Justin Venn diagram sure. and talk about how these traits complement one another? Yeah, I mean, very generally, he is the technical person. He's the builder. So he's an unbelievable product person. I I would describe us both as product people, but he's on the technical side. He can take a shaped idea and go away, and he can build the back end of it, and then he can also design the front end, uh, all of the user interface. And 
I've dabbled in both of those things in my career. And it was just clear as soon as we started working with each other, it was like, this is John's category. Yeah. He is so good at this. Yeah, this, the um, smartest guy I know describes John as one of the smartest guys he knows. So, um, <laughs> yeah, he's, that. he's unbelievably good. Uh, and it's very rare, actually, to have sometimes people call that a full stack developer, somebody who has design chops and programming skills. They are very rare, uh, especially people that can execute on, at his level. So that's his side. And even though there's some overlap in the middle when it comes to product design decisions and shaping product ideas, but then over on my side, I'm way more on the marketing side. Uh, So understanding customers, understanding what customers want, understanding what motivates them, understanding how we can reach them, understanding how we can communicate our value to them, and connecting with them in customer support, connecting with them at industry events, connecting with them on Twitter. That's, that's my, my game. And I, I mean, you can kind of see this if you ever listen to it. <laughs> John is just like, he speaks slower than I do. He's, he's he often has to fight to get anything in when we're podcasting. I've tried to like slow myself down so he can speak more. Uh, but I just love talking. I love performing. You know, when we're at a conference this is this to me is the most hilarious example <laughs> you know we're at xoxo in portland and it's john mike our friend and myself and we're in one of those circles that emerges at a at a conference you know and i'm kind of holding court i'm entertaining the group i'm directing conversation i'm just in my element i i could have done it for hours And I look over at John and Mike, and they are exhausted. (laughs) And they're kind of like, they're like, hey, man, it's getting late. Maybe we should grab an Uber and head back to the Airbnb. I'm like, well, okay. I mean, I guess it is getting late. It's like 11 o'clock or whatever. Let's, Let's go back to the Airbnb. So we get back to the Airbnb. And I'm thinking we're going back and we're going to go to sleep. But then we get back and John and Mike, who are, who are, much more introverted. They make some tea and then they want to talk. They want to, let's ah. let's 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 connect here. Let's uh, you know, let's talk a little bit. That immediately exhausts me. <laughs> so the, the, you know, there's in terms of where we draw our energy, it's just different. And um, huh. And this is again another advantage of the partnership is John is the kind of person that says, hey, let's connect. Let's jump on a call. Let's, you know, let's talk these things through. And I need those things just as much as the next person, but I don't always recognize the need for those things unprompted. So he prompts those. And then, you know, on the other side, I'm much more likely to start a live stream and answer questions all day or jump in a clubhouse room or Twitter spaces or you know, read a blog post or whatever, that's kind of my jam. And uh, I think you need both sides. Again, this is the advantage of Voltron, is that these two things can come together. The negotiation and then kind of moving forward with both parts together intact is where the, the real magic for us has kind of been. I know that you said that you don't talk about this so much, and we can strike this from the record if you would like to. 
But I'm reminded of this um, mid-1920s best-selling novel by Bruce Barton. It's not nearly as good as Barbarian Days, I assure you. (laughs) And um, Bruce Barton wrote this book called The Man Nobody Knows, and it's this glorification of American business, but through a religious lens. Mm. And in this book, Barton deifies Jesus, not for his divinity per se, but for his salesmanship. Mm -hmm. Yep. And he, you know, he got these 12 men from seemingly out of nowhere to try to craft a message of empowerment and salvation and, in effect, take over much of the known world. I guess I wonder how your experiences in ministry empowered you and gave you the skill set to sell ice to Eskimos Mm -hmm. and to get energy from other people and to bring out the best in others, but also to like remain on point. You got a very clear, well, mission. Yeah. No, I think it's huge. Evangelicalism is an interesting culture. Because there's so many opportunities, if you grew up in an evangelical church, to express yourself creatively, to get in front of a crowd and give a speech, to spearhead a new initiative, to go on a mission, to raise funds for something, to learn a new skill. It's like, hey, who wants to run the soundboard on Sunday morning? Who wants to play guitar? Who wants to be in charge of this event? Who wants to be in charge of this retreat? There's just a ton of opportunities for a young person growing up to explore the things that they might want to do in a safe place, right? You give your first talk in front of church, it's just like, that's a, that's a really kind audience. Um, and, and so you get to practice, you get to try things out. Like, when you leave religion... I think one of the things that has been challenging is there's just so much good technology and routine and rails for life kind of wrapped up in religion. And, you know, for my own kids, I I, I sometimes I'm a little bit sad that we've lost that because there's just not as many opportunities for them to express themselves, be creative, and try things out the way that I was able to do. There's no secular version of that, or not as many secular versions, I'll say. And then on the sales side, uh, I mean, uh, again, especially evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is selling faith. It's salesmanship. It is marketing. Absolutely. Salvation. Yeah. it's (laughs) uh, And often to a crowd that is not super receptive. So, yeah, as much as, you know, sometimes I I want to forget that part of my life, it did inform a lot of who I am. And evangelicalism has borrowed a lot from the business world, and I think vice versa, uh, for good and bad. The, The business leader as religious leader or cult leader, it's being manifested more and more. Elon Musk is a priest, and he has... Uh, disciples all over the world. Uh, Even Basecamp, to a large extent, uh, they inspire a religious-like fervor. They've written their Gospels, right? (laughs) That people read. Yep. And I mean, 
uh, I'm conflicted about it because I think people kind of naturally want this stuff. They want leaders. They want people to communicate principles for living. But there's definitely a downside too, which is when you mix capitalism with that kind of religious-like fervor, you know, there's definitely some downsides. And uh, in my own life, I've tried to, especially recently, I'm I'm trying to walk that line and hold the tension the best that I can, understanding there is a huge risk here that founders, entrepreneurs, business people can accrue that kind of fervor from followers. And we see this definitely in influencer culture. Um, That is to be treated with a lot of care. And I think the way I've tried to fight it is through vulnerability to say, I'm just a jackass on the internet. I'm wrong a lot. You know, I've had some success, but really, uh, <laughs> compared to some other people, our, our success is, you know, relatively minor and l- relatively late in our life. So I think vulnerability is, is one antidote. You, growing up in the church, you see a lot of pastors who are holding it all together and have to pretend to be perfect. And, uh, you know, the more I become an adult, <laughs> the more I realize, even though it's sometimes hard for me to believe, most people are holding inside of them all sorts of darkness, all sorts of difficulty, all sorts of uncomfortable truths. And the more real we can be about that, the the better, I think. You know, our mutual friend, Scott Robin, when I was in... Perhaps my darkest hour, surely my darkest hour as a grown person, he gifted me this book by Alan Watts. Alan Watts was perhaps the foremost scholar of uh, Zen in the Western world. And um, the book was called The Wisdom of Insecurity. I think the title more or less says it all. Mm. But you said the word vulnerability And it reminded me that in my effort to teach history to young people in the throes of a pandemic, I had quoted you, in fact, to my students as saying that vulnerability beats professionalism in this space. Hmm. You and John walk through your hopes and your dreams, your fears and your anxieties around your business Indeed, you and John, you you podcasted your whole bootstrapping process. Mm-hmm. Uh, you even go double meta, devoting an episode to transparency in startup. Can you talk a bit about the role of vulnerability and transparency in your work? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, early on, it was helpful in two fronts. One, it allowed us to just be honest with ourselves and have this ongoing journal of our experience. And it also had a benefit early on of marketing because when people are being authentic and sharing the things that often don't get shared, including in our case, our revenue numbers, you know, those are things people don't get to see. And so it had the benefit of people talking about us, of following our journey, of rooting for us 
And again, that also causes its own word of mouth, right? Like, have you heard of these guys, what they're doing? Here's what they're doing. And, but beyond that, it's just like nice not having to hide anything. Hiding things takes energy. And when you have a community of people who are following your journey and are engaging with you in that way, you get the wisdom of the crowd. You know, you can, you can put something out into the world and say, hey, we're struggling with this. We need help. And the, the community can, often they want to help. They're hungry to help. They, they, they're eager to, to be able to contribute in some way. And, and to me, that's really like part of the power of the internet is that regular people can connect with one another. And, you know, you can be starting a company or starting something new, and you can get help from other people uh, without having to pay for it. And I mean, sometimes you pay for it too. That's fine too. But the the idea that there's this ability to kind of share your story and then in return get people's help when you need it is is really big. Um, part of me is almost angry. Yeah. P- people told me that uh, normal, healthy human beings, you know, their their life and their relationships and their their inner self is just like this. You know, you're you're not allowed to have a breakdown. I think a lot about even uh, the way, because I'm born in 1980, that the way the media treated uh, Britney Spears, I know she's actually a topic right now, but she, she had her breakdown. And I remember judging her at the time and like, oh, look at that. That is just pitiful. You know, what a, right. what, what a uh, embarrassment. And now I recognize like, that's me, <laughs> except I just wasn't in the spotlight. Like I am that person. Yeah. I, I have breakdowns. I am trying to hold it together. These are all real experiences. Yet why are we pretending life is something that it's not? Yeah, I think it just makes everything easier. It makes it easier in my partnership. It makes it easier when we, we are, as a company, when we're addressing the public and new customers. It makes it easier for me as a somewhat public person to be able to uh, every once in a while just be like my true vulnerable self. Like I've really benefited from people who were vulnerable in public. I think that one of the reasons I was able to get out of depression, find therapy, understand what was going on inside of me after years of ignoring it. It's just so helpful to have people who are willing to, to be their authentic selves as much as they can in their writing, in their podcasting. It's, it's just refreshing, especially because as human beings, we often need to know that someone else is doing that thing. Like, I'm not going to go to therapy if I'm the only one on the planet who goes to therapy. It's just too, <laughs> right. it's, I can't do that. But if I know that Nathan's gone to therapy and Sarah's gone to therapy and it's like, oh, okay, well, this is acceptable. People like me go to therapy yeah. Right. And so if we can use that piece of code for good and say, well, this is people like us do go to therapy. Oh, I didn't know that. Well, that, I guess that makes it okay. Yeah, that's fine. Like you can do that. You can do that for yourself. That's a good thing. People like us can have margin in our lives. We don't have to have, you know, every ounce of our energy spent in a day. We can keep some. We can even keep some for ourselves. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, like, we can. Like that, that, those revelations to me are so powerful. And some of it is because I was in religion so long and religion keeps so many things under wraps that I feel like in some ways I'm still a young person discovering these things for the first time. Like I'm, for the first time, I'm re- recognizing that normal people feel this way. It feels new to me <laughs> still. Well, I have to say that I admire and I might even confess to you that I envy the degree to which you allow yourself to be vulnerable in this conversation, in the way that you rolled out Transistor.fm. I think there's something really empowering in the language that you deploy around your work and around your relationships. Um, And part of the reason I wanted to have you on this podcast is because I really do think that more people will stand to benefit from, you know, sharing with you in your discussion, in your reflection of what I'm loosely calling your work, mm-hmm. right? But it's, it's of course, so much more than that. One of the things that you have to be really vulnerable in, and I know that you sort of relish some of this vulnerability and you've found some of, you found some wisdom in the insecurity around decision-making. You have to make a lot of decisions, 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 like the size, design, and placement of the embeddable media player on Mm Transistor.fm, like just the number of decisions around that. Can you discuss the role of decision-making and decision fatigue in particular Mm. in your work? Yeah, sure. Well, it definitely helps if you have margin in your life. Uh, making decisions is a lot harder when you don't have margin. What do you mean by you've, you've said it a couple of times. I, th- I think I, I, I understand the metaphor, but when you talk about having margin in your life, can you maybe spell that out and then carry on? Yeah, so margin is just space energy it, it it's emotional space it's financial space it's um actual time space it's space left over on the okinawan island they have this idea of eating till you're 80% full and then leaving 20% that same principle of margin like you're going to leave some space here uh, in design, margin is all of the white space around an element, right? It's like, this is the space we're leaving around this element so it can breathe. That's what I mean by margin. And when you have margin, so, I mean, the best example is when you have money in the bank, making financial decisions is a lot easier because you're not pressed down by the anxiety and stress of the decision. They've done studies on folks who have car repairs. I've got this uh, blog post called How Desperation Affects Creativity. So when the cost of a car repair was increased to $3,000, the cognitive performance of people at the upper end of the income distribution was unaffected by the increase. But the people at the lower end of the income distribution suffered a 40% decline in cognitive ability. So just by not having margin, making decisions and decision fatigue, it's just 
way more stressful. It's way more difficult. Uh, you return to your lizard brain, which is not as good at making good, healthy decisions with sober judgment. And so for, for me, margin has been everything. And this, this is coming out of a time in my life where I had very little. Like I was just in desperation mode all the time. And I'd felt it. I, I knew what it was like to feel like, oh, shit, like I, I got to make some money now and I got to figure this out for next week because, you know, that's when the mortgage is coming out. And having margin for your time, like if you have to make a decision really quick, um, that really affects things. We, we try to make decisions slow. During the pandemic, uh, you know, John had a hard year. And uh, at the beginning of the year, he's like, I just don't got it in me. Mm. And it was so nice to be able to say, you know what, man? That's fine. Let's just, let's just take it easy. Mm. We don't have to push ourselves to do something that we don't have in us. Let's just give it time. Let it breathe. Take it slow. And the unfortunate thing about modern society is that we have created an environment where people are increasingly squeezed, where they have very little margin. The margins have been erased. Um, and uh, making decisions when you're in a garbage compactor that's closing in around you is just the worst. It's just like, yeah, that's that you don't. That's what you don't want to be. And so, one of the reasons I like bootstrapping, even though it's stressful in the beginning when you're building it, is that once you get to scale, you don't have a venture capitalist breathing down your neck telling you to 1,000x uh, growth. Because that's what they want for all of their LPs, you know? Like, let's just, let's just cool it. Let's just take time. Let's slow it down. Let's, let's not get so worried about it. Does this decision have to be made today? There's like very few decisions in Transistor that need to be made today. Huh. You know, when you have space, it really helps decision making. And we loosely follow Basecamp's shape-up process which is you kind of shape ideas over time. You're just kind of always chewing on them, thinking about them. Hey, what if we did this? And you're just always kind of shaping them into a form. And once the form is kind of relatively there, then you say, hey, let's work on this and let's set a deadline. Let's make it two weeks or six weeks, nothing longer than six weeks generally. And that helps too because it forces you to make smaller decisions, right? And it forces you to over time just kind of gradually chew on things. And then once they're kind of ready to be worked on, then you work on them. By staying small, we keep decisions simple. (laughs) You know, like we don't want to add too much complexity to the product because the more complexity we add, the more difficult it is to build, the more difficult it is to uh, maintain, the more difficult it is for customers to understand. So, we're, we're trying to be very purposeful in keeping the product as simple as we can. Unfortunately, and this is what I'm continuing to wrestle with, um, so may, I'm going to read all those books you, you suggested so that I can, <laughs> I, I can advance the science here, but, you know... Don't, don't, don't read the Bruce Barton book, The Man Nobody Knows About, the Jesus Parable. It's that, that one, that, just to be clear, that wasn't a recommendation. Mm. Okay, I won't <laughs> read that one. But I, I am concerned about society as a whole. Yeah. And the fact that for so many people, margins have been erased. 
that for so many people, they're living on the edge all the time, that so many people are uh, demanded to spend 110% of their mental faculties every day and leave nothing left over. And in some ways, John and I are the lucky ones and the exceptions to the rule. And, you know, I see bootstrapping as one way that people can achieve that kind of margin, but there needs to be more ways that we do that. Especially once you live it, you just want it for every other human being. So one of the reasons I have been so critical of the large platforms, the large multinational corporations, is that they they just consume so much and leave so little for the people who participate in those ecosystems. And they centralize power, they centralize the means of distribution, they remove leverage from regular people. And I think that's a shame. We need to do something. I don't know what, what all the answers are, but we definitely need to press into that more than we are already are. And it's probably going to need, you know, some creative economics. I've been reading a lot about modern monetary theory and whether governments can actually print more money than they are right now without too much inflation. Yeah. Uh, because empowering human beings to have margin in their lives is the best way to get the most out of human beings. Yeah. And I think we've been fed a lie, which is, no, it's all about hustle. It's all about grinding. And there's a time to grind. There's a time to hustle. But we've turned what used to be a short sprint into a marathon, but requiring the same energy would give a sprint. It doesn't make sense. It's not sustainable. And I would encourage actually anybody listening to this uh-huh. who is working for a boss who continually requires th- that your margins be eroded, those kinds of businesses and industries and sectors rarely get better. Hmm. <laughs> you know, a, a, a business with bad fundamentals, that the boss will download all of his stress onto you, the underling. And we've all been in situations like that where you don't know how good the business is doing, but you can tell because the boss is stressed out is, you know, angry at you, is asking you to do things, is asking you to work on weekends, is asking you to take a pay cut. Uh, If you can, and I realize this isn't possible for everybody, and I've been there, but looking for other work, there is work that is high margin. And uh, I think it's worth pursuing because the the costs of staying in a low margin environment are are huge. And your boss will take everything from you and will spit you out at the end of it and be okay with it. So this is up to us as individual workers to stand up for ourselves and to, you know, seek out when we can margin. And for people who have margin in their lives, our responsibility is to uh, give a hand up to people that need more margin. And so there's a dual responsibility there of charity and generosity from folks who have achieved it and for people who are seeking it to really seek it because low margin situations rarely get better. It's like a bad relationship. You know, sometimes you do have to leave and seek out something that's better. Yeah. Now, of course, in in Canada, you have universal 
health insurance, which allows for yeah. people to be more mobile. A lot of our friends in the United States, they don't have that. And I know you're aware of that, but I, I was thinking yeah. about the universal health insurance that you and I get to enjoy and thinking about Annie Lowry's book in particular about the universal basic income. Mm-hmm. And there are real discussions around UBI. And mm-hmm. there are those who have been concerned that the economic effects of the pandemic are going to undermine those honest and earnest discussions about UBI. Mm -hmm. But I, for one, think that this pandemic is going to catalyze the discussions around UBI. And I think that could be a really important turning point Mm -hmm. towards creating margin in people's lives. And there are experiments with all of that. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, this podcast itself is you know, called Studs, is named after one of the great thinkers about working from the past century, Studs Terkel. He's a Chicago radio guy. Surely would have had a podcast had he lived long <laughs> enough to enjoy the golden age of podcasting. And, you know, his thinking uh, about working uh, remains influential. Like the language around working uh, is in so many ways formed by, by him, at least in my, you know, in, in, in what I read. Mm-hmm. I love the way you talk about margin in this particular arena. I think it's a really powerful way because everyone you talk to, they seem and feel so pinched, mm-hmm. you know, and we operate in this environment where at best stress is this status symbol. You know, you ask people mm-hmm. how you doing, they're like, oh, I got this deadline, I got this project, I got to get this done by then. And part of it is people sort of virtue signaling and everyone's trying to outwork the the next person. But most of it, I think, is very real. People are obsessed mm-hmm. over their work. Now, I think it's really interesting how, like, a lot of the listeners and the demographic for the Studs podcast, there's a lot of people who, you know, they have university degrees, they're they're aspiring, they have perhaps some privilege, mm-hmm. and they have marketable skills, yeah? Mm-hmm. These are people who, in many ways, are living the dream that, like, our generation really sought to achieve. It was the dream of repudiating what our parents did. You know, my father worked for Kellogg's cereal, middle-level manager for 40 years. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, yeah, he got the company car, but he yeah. was the, the golden handcuffs. Yeah, he had the pension, but the job, eh, you know. Yeah. He had to do a lot of work that he he found to be anathema to his constitution. Dude had a retirement countdown calendar for a thousand days, you know, and he could have had one for 4,000 days, the way he talked about his work. And what your generation, my generation sought to do was to repudiate that and to give ourselves freedom from the office. Well, we got that now. Mm-hmm. Doesn't feel so great. You know, freedom from, you know, working for, for companies. Mm-hmm. Well, there's obviously ups and downs to that. Mm-hmm. You know, Kierkegaard said in an essay, you know, that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. And we have this really free space. We operate in this increasingly free space, but this space is riddled with demons, mm-hmm. some of which we see, most of which we don't. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really heartening for me to hear how you're able to create some margin, you're able to create some space, you're able to 
create some freedom. And yeah, you've surely struggled with vulnerability. You've surely struggled with anxiety. And I have to say, I'm really sorry to hear that you struggled with some depression and you came out on the other end of it. That's the good news. Mm -hmm. But so much of this is a manifestation of the dream writ large, the economy that we have created in opposition to what our parents' generation was subjected to. Mm -hmm. For a lot of us, it is more free. Mm -hmm. But even for those of us for whom it's more free, gold necktie, man, it's real. Now, look, I'm on the other side of that, right? A tenured teacher, you know, my job is probably too stable, frankly. Hmm. You know, one thing that I've learned during the pandemic as I got torn away from that sacred space, otherwise known as a classroom, and thrown into this world of so-called digital teaching, which has been, in my case, little more than triage. Mm-hmm. You know, I haven't been doing it long enough to be a competent digital instructor, but like, mm-hmm. I got my security blanket ripped the fuck off right quick. Mm-hmm. And I found myself without any real transition into the world of like, bootstrapping teaching, right? Just trying to pull myself up and like, Mm -hmm. you know, just trying to be innovative. And so like what you're talking about in terms of trying to create space in such an inclement environment, you know, the pavement slabs are burning loose beneath our feet. And it's very much the case that the world of working is changing as you and I are speaking. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And what this podcast seeks to do is to try to shed some light on this moment right now. Like I'm trying to document mm-hmm. 2020, 2021 as a, from a worker's point of view. Yeah. Because I think we could take some solace in the fact that the way it is today is not going to be the way it is a few years from now. The sheer number of forces and the forces themselves make it impossible to see the future look anything like the present or the past. So I try to, like I know you do, I try to get excited about all of this. You know, there's room to be cautiously optimistic without being a fool. Yeah. Although a little foolish optimism has suited me well sometimes. Hope, my friend. I'm a, yeah. I'm, I'm a bit of a hope junkie. Yes. I, I'm actually hopeful too, because I think the pandemic has illustrated all of these things. Um you know, a lot of old ideas, old ideologies where people are like, well, people can't work remotely. They need to commute. We all need to be in office. Well, maybe we won't go all the way, but we sure can go part of the way, right? It sure is helpful having a robust public health care system when there's a pandemic. So I think uh, shaking the tree, the ideological tree, and seeing what fruit really falls down is... Uh, you know, worth doing. And this has given us that opportunity. And uh, I'm hopeful that that keeps going, that we keep shaking, you know, it's revealed like Amazon has benefited incredibly from the pandemic. And I think there's a lot of people going, well, is that a good thing? (laughs) Like, is this really a net positive? Is it better that Bezos is a trillion dollars richer? Like, is this really the kind of world we want to live in? What would it take to balance things out a little bit more, you know? I'm not saying we need to take Amazon away. I'm not saying that we need to take all of Bezos' money, but how can we rebalance things a little bit more? How can we make things a little bit more equal? 
How can we give more people margin as opposed to just the people at the very top? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hopeful too. I think especially because we have a communications platform that as of now is still open. We can still communicate ideas to each other. We can still speak freely on a podcast and ignite ideas in each other's minds, uh, shape ideas together and explore, you know, solutions. Well, you being a voice of reason and a voice of hope and a voice of clear-minded criticism about the systemic obstacles to creating a more just and sustainable future, it should be enough. But I have to ask you to help me drive this train into the station by sharing the stories of one professional triumph and one professional failure. Hmm. Can you please begin with the failure so that we could end perhaps more poetically the note of triumph? (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, in terms of failure, I think the two years leading up to Transistor, uh, they started with a bang, really great out of the gate, but they weren't sustainable. I started consulting full-time in 2014, 2016. I start mostly selling. I had a course called Marketing for Software Developers that did really well. And there are some types of work that are just higher margin. They have better customers. They have more repeat customers. They have customers that spend more money. They have business models that are more sustainable. And I was in a business model that just required me to continually relaunch things. So I'd get done with one launch and then I'd be immediately kind of building up to the next launch. And it wasn't until I met a a friend who had also launched a course. His first launch, he made more in a month than I made in a year. That was eye-opening for me in a way of recognizing that (laughs) especially when you're on your own, when you're building your own business, you really need the highest margin possible. And I think it's worth recognizing that at least right now in our current system, but probably for a long time, not all opportunities are equal. And the more clear-minded we can be about opportunities and the risk we're taking, right? The biggest risk as an entrepreneur is that you're probably going to have a string of failures And so my failure is, like, I ran out of almost all my money. Uh, When I got depressed, I I couldn't go into the office. I couldn't do those launches anymore. And so I just spent all of our savings. And now I know if if I get depressed like that again, I'd be okay. Right? There's a, there's enough margin there. There's enough sustenance there. And and we have to be careful about what we're risking. Uh, the truth is, like, if something goes wrong, if one of the wheels comes off the wagon, that grind, that continuous, like, grind doesn't, doesn't work. Everything falls apart. So you need to have something that gives you back what you put in and more. And for me, the way out of this, I think this is my biggest triumph, is trying to connect with a diversity of people. And being curious and really kind of investigating their world. What's it like 
to do that work? How hard is it? What, like, how long do you have to commute? How much time? Do you work on the weekends? Do you work when you're on vacation? What's the pay like? And for me, exploring that, having friends that showed me their business model, that showed me their bank account, that was the inspiration I needed to seek out something better. And, you know, that was really the genesis of Transistor. I think recognizing when you're in a bad situation and really being honest about it, and then if you can, connecting with other people that might be able to give you a new perspective, that might be able to give you ideas, that might be able to point you in a different direction. Because now the triumph for me is that I get to share. I get to be generous. I get to reveal what's happened to me and paint the picture in a way that hopefully communicates to other people like, well, there's other things that are possible. I've been in that grind all day, no margin at the end of the day, but there is other opportunities out there. And I can also offer, in some cases, those opportunities. Yeah, I think those things kind of encapsulate it all. Be careful about spending your margins and uh, you don't have to be stuck in the same thing forever. Like there is hope. There might be a valley, a dark valley for a while, but generally the people who stay on it, who have a good community, who, have, who pursue other connections, generally that, that seems to pay off pretty well in my experience. Well, you have triumphed rather magnificently, I should say. I think that you and John and the fine folks at Transistor.fm, you do really meaningful work. You, you embolden and you empower people. You encourage them to share their stories and, and their voices. And then you support them through that process. I know because I'm, I'm, I'm one of your clients. And so I can only say that you have been both vulnerable and professional in this space. I'm really grateful that you joined me on the Studs podcast. I'll tell you, man, I'm honored to have my podcast hosted on your platform. So thanks for everything you do. And uh, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, no, this was great. I, I Honestly, this was a pleasure. And that, my dear friends, was probably one of my favorite Studs conversations. It was the perfect kickoff to season five. And it is my pleasure to announce here and now that Justin Jackson is my new favorite Canadian. Take that, Neil Young. All right, so subscribe and leave a review. And if you dig what you hear, please tell a friend or two. And if studs mean something to you and you got the means to give a few, please consider supporting me over at patreon.com slash studs. Spring is in the air, my friends. I feel it in my bones. I'm back in the classroom. The classrooms are half full, but I'm 100% energy. Look, I'm no fool. I don't think I'm a fool. Something a fool would say, I suppose. But there's reason for hope. What are we without hope? I hope you have reasons for hope. I hope you're feeling all right. I'm super stoked about season five of Studs, and I look forward to catching you next week for a conversation with a concierge at a five-star superior hotel here in Berlin. I'm looking forward to that conversation. And you should too. Stay funky, everyone. 
We'll catch you next week. I'm still learning. I still feel like I'm a beginner. Hey, you and me both, man. It's all about having that youthful mindset. It's all about feeling like a baby, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what this podcasting thing has done for me as much as anything is it's really Mm -hmm. allowed me to get back down on my hands and my knees and crawl a little bit. And that's part of the reason that I was kind of ambitious to get you on the podcast. You know, it's like when I started taking piano lessons again in my thirties, it's like, all right, motherfucker, get back down on your knees, Mm -hmm. start crawling that's your G sharp scale. Yeah. Have fun, son. Yeah. And like, this is, um, you know, some Scott Robin and I talk about with great frequency. Like he's, he's really my role model in that way. His ability and his willingness to just get down on the floor and try new things. I think he and I both feared that age and or parenting would undermine our commitment Mm. to that but it really uh the opposite has been true and Mm -hmm. you know look if this pandemic has taught us anything right as long as we're physically healthy Mm -hmm. and by physically i mean head to toe you know yeah uh, uh, psychologically physically well if as long as we're as long as we don't hate what we see in the mirror and you know our hearts beating okay Mm -hmm. the rest is just fucking butter, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what would I do? What would I do if Spotify gave me $30 million? I would still want to come to my little studio and write. I would still want to research. I would still want to podcast. Like, these are the things I would want to do. These are the things that Margin enables me to do. What What more could you ask for? A little bit of sleep. A little bit of sleep. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>